You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command. It is the start of a new week here on Monday, March 18th. It is promising to be a quiet week with the Congress critters out on another vacation. I don't know if it's St. Patty's vacation. I'm trying to think what the occasion is, but they've been out since uh, late Thursday, 10-day vacation. But we are not taking any vacation here. We are always busy here at Conservative Review monitoring the truth because, frankly, you guys will not get it anywhere else. And there's a lot of truth bombs that, not, that frankly, need to be set off right now about what is going on with the sovereignty of this nation. So the Senate conducted a drive-by vote, the ultimate drive-by vote, where they disapprove of the president's declaration of emergency. As you well know, 12 Republican senators joined with every Democrat. The president issued his first veto. Hey, you know, if nothing else... (laughs) <laughs> there was good <clears> – <throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> uh, these allergies. There was good news on Thursday that the president finally discovered his veto pen. I mean, hey, that's, that, that's progress. We got to give him credit for that. But isn't it a shame that he never used it on the seven, eight other must-pass bills – that were under his watch while they had control of the House. And it was just a matter of pressuring McConnell to either modify or enforce the rules of the Senate under the threat of a government shutdown. That would have really pressured McConnell because he's a member of your own party. Could have made some progress. But no, he suddenly finds religion when it's too late. <clears throat> and, and really, <clears throat> you know, Trump was elected, nominated as the Republican nominee to change that modus operandi, the Republican Party, always fighting when it's too late, always tossing a touchdown in expedition when the game is over, when the, when the, when the game is no longer in contention. So he had a veto. Fine, that's great. But anyway, a lot of these Republican senators like Mike Lee and Pat Toomey, they're like, well, look, I understand it's an emergency, but I don't like this, you know, abuse of Article One powers and uh, uh, growth of executive uh, legislation. So we have to go and make a stand. And it's funny, all these phony, thumb-sucking, pseudo-conservative inside-the-beltway media are into this massive show of force. Uh, somehow this was like the Spartans holding the line. Yeah, this was our... Our time to stand up for executive, for legislative authority. And, you know, we thoroughly debunked that on Thursday, how this was such a joke, because they don't give a darn about executive power in any other context than the more severe judicial power grabs, especially when the judiciary forces the executive to violate power. They don't care about that. But they said, certainly we care about the issue. 
And we noted at the time, okay, so vote on something. But no, they didn't do anything. Nobody in America still knows the name Bambi Larson, who was brutally murdered on our soil. Everyone knows every detail about what happened in New Zealand. And look, you know, from our perspective, murder is murder is murder. A mass murder is a mass murder. If they're innocent people, they're innocent people. It doesn't change the dynamics in terms of how evil the act is. But in terms of public policy and redressability, we've said many times with mass shootings on our soil, mass shootings are a real tough nut to crack. If there's no immigration angle to it, there's really not a lot of redressability. There's not much you can do. These things tend not to follow the course of general crime and homicide where there's a rap sheet, a history Mass murder is something that is just is just very hard to stop. And the more crazy people we have we have in the world of all types, you know, the more unfortunately it's going to happen. But anyway, somehow if this happens in New Zealand, it becomes a public policy issue for America. Everyone has to have their take on it. Whereas my buddy Steve Dace made the important point that we know all the details about New Zealand. New Zealand, we still don't know a single thing over 500 days later, about the biggest mass shooting on our soil in Las Vegas. How did that happen? What's the motive? Everyone in the media seems to be okay with the fact that, nah, there's nothing more to see. FBI gave us everything they can. It's funny how suddenly the officious questioning media suddenly loses their moxie when it comes to uh, an area of news that they don't want to discover the truth about. Or they think that nothing good will come of it. So it's just just interesting watching this. I mean, again, from our perspective of morality, every killing of an innocent person is equal. But in terms of redressability, as I said before, the case of Bambi Larson... That was 100% preventable nine times over. Really more than that. It seems about the guy was arrested 12 times before, 12 opportunities to get him out of the country. Whereas these mass shootings, if they're not done by someone who shouldn't have been here to begin with, there's a limit to what you can do. So I just wanted to point that out before we get too far into that rabbit hole. And just also the point that, you know, every day... Islamic terrorists shoot up churches, whether they're in Egypt, whether in Turkey, all over the Middle East, South Asia. I don't see anyone clamoring to ever put out press releases and virtue signal over that. It's just very interesting to see what what is okay to care about in this society. Obviously, in Israel, there were several uh, terror attacks um, people worshiping. You know, everyone's like, how could it be? How could it be that someone could gun down people while they're worshiping? Yeah, I know. It's pretty horrible, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just very selective. But anyway, in terms of public policy, 
What can we do? We can stop people who don't belong in this country from coming here and harming us fiscally, criminally, with diseases. That we can do. It doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't cost us any liberty. It doesn't cost us any funds. It doesn't cost us any time. But they're out. They're out for 10 days. We have an invasion at our border, and they're out. Which leads me to my next point. I want to solidify a point I've been making the last number of days and weeks. That at the end of the day, the buck stops here with the President of the United States. He is the Commander-in-Chief of the military. He protects our sovereignty. He has the ability to block anyone or anything from crossing any air, land, or sea border. At the end of the day, while we shouldn't certainly let Congress escape any criticism, pigs will fly before they do anything. There is nothing that will change. In other words, if we are going to countenance the notion that the President of the United States cannot unilaterally and abruptly stop an invasion at our border without having 60 senators and 91 district courts agreeing with him, then we don't have a country. Then nothing about this upcoming election will change anything. Best case scenario, Republicans win back the House. Donald Trump wins re-election as President of the United States. But Republicans will have roughly the number of Senate seats they have now, give or take. They will get nowhere close to 60. So they're not going to pass anything. Nor will the courts stop doing their civil disobedience against immigration law, which, as I noted, even if you had 60 Senate votes, they're striking down immigration statutes. So it doesn't matter. So at some point, the president needs to take action. I have an article out today really bringing home the notion of how absurd it is for this president to continue to make so many excuses and distractions to allow this invasion to go on this severely for this long. We've had other times in our history where we've had bogus asylum seekers, you know, lawfare, and it was shut down pretty swiftly. And it didn't require, at least not immediately, a new law passed by Congress. It's not about building a wall anymore. It's about building a will. Let's first discuss the severity of what is going on. Surprisingly, Nick Myroff of the Washington Post is actually doing some pretty good journalism. And... You know, it's something we should pay attention to. He's been covering the caravans and what's going on with the cartels for the Washington Post. And he has an article out about, quote, a conveyor belt to the U.S. border. So this is not just like random boat people just desperately, you know, coming here. There is a well oiled, almost an economic engine churning these people out. You know, a lot of people feel uncomfortable 
when we use the term invasion, oh, you can't call a bunch of impoverished people coming an invasion. Well, I mean, look, to me, when you have hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of the most impoverished, unassimilable people coming into our country, that kind of is an invasion. But even if you don't like that, the fact that it's orchestrated by evil smugglers and cartels violating our sovereignty and using them to a weaponize immigration to weaken us as a nation. My buddy Joseph Humeyer always talks about that. Um, Maduro and the Bolivian leader and all the and really Russia and China, they're behind a lot of these caravans. That is weaponization of migration. That is an invasion. And then just at our border with the Mexican cartels closer to our border, using them as a distraction to bring in the terrible drugs and crime and gangs. I'm here to tell you this is worse than an invasion. An invasion is temporary. You could push back the line of of the invasion and then get them out. This invasion permanently disperses irrevocably and embedding drugs, gangs, criminals, unassimilable aliens, poverty, cultural problems in all our schools in a way that it's a legal cultural invasion that you can't even you can't push back. There's no line of demarcation. But anyway, I want to read this article for you. Smugglers in Mexico have been using express buses to deliver Guatemalan migrant families to the US border in a matter of days, making the journey faster, easier, and safer. The smugglers entice families with promises that their journey will be free of the perils usually associated with the travel to the border, charging up to 7000 per adult with, with a child. After transporting families to staging areas at ranches and hotels in southern Mexico, they organize them into bus groups and rush north along Mexican highways, stopping only for food, fuel, and bathroom breaks, according to U.S. law enforcement reports. And they have a lot of good graphics here. We're, we'll uh, link to this in show notes. The smugglers organize the families into groups as large as 300 or more, directing parents and children to walk across the border and surrender to U.S. agents to start the asylum process. U.S. officials call it the conveyor belt and have asked Mexican authorities to help stop it. More than 70 groups with 100 or more migrants have arrived at the border since October, up from 13 groups that size during the government's 2018 fiscal year. And they they go on to show some camera camera footage of this going on. That's an invasion. The express system is tailor-made for the fastest-growing segment of unauthorized migration, adults bringing children. Children generally travel free because those who arrive at the U.S. border with a minor need only to be guided there, not across it, in order to turn themselves in and start the asylum process. Um... The operation allows smugglers to, quote, minimize overhead and maximize capacity, generating bigger profits, according to U.S. law enforcement reports reviewed by the Washington Post. The express method allows the traffickers to cut costs and boost volume, and by some and by some accounts, smugglers' fees have been dropping in recent months, potentially attracting more customers. Many of the buses have delivered migrants to the most remote stretches of the U.S.-Mexican border of West Texas, such as the area around Antelope Wells, New Mexico, we covered that extensively here. Border Patrol official Ramiro Cordero assists other agents on 
patrol near Antelope Wells, where they expect large migrant groups to cross in mass. And again, they show a bunch of pictures here. Sparsely populated remote areas along the border typically have few U.S. agents on patrol, so the arrival of hundreds of parents with children in the middle of the night quickly overwhelms U.S. capacity to process them. U.S. officials say criminal organizations sometimes use the groups as as a diversion, moving drugs across the border while agents are tied up with the migrant families. I mean, all Trump has to do is read this article. Just read it. Read it publicly. So uh, we'll link to that in show notes. And uh, there it is, folks. That's the whole enchilada. This is a death spiral. The more we show we're not going to do anything, anyone who comes here could declare asylum. is not a darn thing we could do. The more the economic engines churn. I mean, you could create a massive economy based on that, and that's what the smugglers are doing. If you believe that there's nothing we can do about this, then, then let's go home. Then we're lying to ourselves. The border wall doesn't help. Winning more elections doesn't help. The reality is no other era would we have done this. And frankly, I believe if we would have had a Democrat president now, we would have been doing more just from the sheer embarrassment. The entire right would be up in arms. But you know what? You listen to conservative media, the only time they discuss this, they do discuss this, but it's only in the context of defending the president on the wall or the Senate vote on the resolution. Not that, oh my gosh, we have an invasion, it's got to stop. It's just in the context of defending the president. So if the president himself is not focusing on it in a given day, they're not focused on it. Whereas under a Democrat, we would be yelping about this. So I did a little research. I looked back in time. We've dealt with this, a similar notion of coming here to declare asylum several other times. The three times that come to mind is the famous Muriel boat lifts of the Cubans in 1980 when Castro actually weaponized immigration against us when – mainly in May, May and June of 1980, but it started in like April 20th and it lasted until the fall. The um, the boat lift, a total of 124,000 Cubans came during that time to South Florida. You had the Nicaraguan influx after there was a hurricane, a bunch of stuff going on there in February or so of 1989 right after H.W. Bush took office. And then you had the Haitian boat migration crisis at the end of H.W. Bush and in and the beginning of the Clinton administration. All of those cross-border migrations, whether it was maritime or by land, it was a similar idea of people coming to declare asylum coming in relatively large numbers. And in each time, so, you know, we were caught by surprise a little bit. But as soon as we got our footing, after a couple weeks, we moved to shut it down. And as bad as it was, both in terms of numbers and duration, it didn't last for nearly this long. It just didn't. 
we've now let in several hundred thousand of these families that so far are never going to be deported. Remember, the Mariel boat lifts, 124,000, mainly after two months we shut it down. The Nicaraguan border crisis, that was, uh, you know, 10, 20,000 came in, maybe a little more than that, <clears throat> in South Texas. And um, guess what? We shut it down. And I want you guys to remember, I want you guys to remember this was actually before the passage of Ira Ira, the 1996 laws that tightened up some access to the courts and stuff like this. They shut it down. They put them in tent cities. This is from the New York Times, February 21st, 1989. Federal government announced plans today to detain Central Americans who file invalid claims for political asylum and hold them in, tent, in a tent city. It will erect near here with space for 5,000 people. The new policy goes into effect Tuesday and seeks to cut the flow of these immigrants into South Texas. It will be the first mass detention of an immigrant group since 1981 when thousands of Haitians were held after they tried to enter Florida illegally. The announcement at a news conference here by Commissioner Alan C. Nelson of the Immigration Nationalization Services, that, that was the old INS, reverses a Reagan administration policy that encouraged immigration by opponents of Nicaraguan, Nicaragua's Sandinista government. New procedures, more staff. See, see the irony, you know, Reagan wanted them because of the whole fight with communism there. But uh, anyway, they, you know, H.W. <clears throat> Bush shut it down. Under the old policy, people who crossed the border illegally and requested political asylum remained free and could travel anywhere in the United States while their applications were processed, <clears throat> which often took weeks. Similar to now, except it takes years. Streamline procedures and more staff here will reduce the processing time to a day, said Nelson. This is exactly what Jessica Vaughn and I called for last week, by the way. Applicants for asylum will be detained immediately if their claims are rejected in this initial screening. These people previously remained free while they appealed. And under the new rules, refugees taken into custody by the Border Patrol before they have a chance to present <clears throat> an asylum application will also be served with a deportation order and detained. In the past, most were released on their recognizance. <clears throat> Court action considered lawyers who have previously challenged immigration service policies on behalf of refugees, <clears throat> said today that they were considering court action against the new plan. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, it didn't work. This was a 315-acre facility. We had much less technology back then. And that's it. More than 500 federal officials were mobilized for this, what we call a rocket docket, where you put these immigration judges at the border. And uh, that was it. Initially, as many as 87% of asylum claims by Nicaraguans were approved. Huh. Sounds like today. But again... When the numbers weren't nearly as much, we said enough. 
And again, back then, there was actually a reason why we might have wanted them, just because the geopolitical fight against communism. It was a little bit complicated. But when it was clear that, look, this is too much of a public charge on us, they shut it down. We are now at the point where this iteration has been going on for about a year, hundreds of thousands. Broadly, the Central American migration with certain ebbs and flows has been going on since 2014. I counted up manually. If you count all the children, UACs, and family units between and at points of entry, it's approaching a million people since 2014. Almost none of them have been deported. Almost none. That's it. So... Anyone who tells you we can't do anything. Now, again, I understand. Anything we do, a court will will come after. But what what are you going to do? This is true even if you win re-election. This is true no matter how many Senate seats you win. If If you're willing to stand up to the courts, there's a lot you can do constitutionally and lawfully. If you're not willing to do it, then we're done. Because John Roberts is refusing to stand by his own precedent now. So if you're waiting for him, then our country will be dead by then. So, uh, there you go. There you go. It's amazing. Amazing how history repeats itself. Then you had in the early 90s, if you remember, you had all the upheaval in Haiti. Remember when Clinton got involved militarily there, but you know it started under H.W. Bush. And you know what they did? They banned them. So Haitians were coming on boats to land here and declare asylum. The Coast Guard went back, interdicted them, and sent them home. The president used, both H.W. Bush and Clinton used, guess what? Inherent executive to authority to prevent people from coming here and 212F of the INA. And guess what? It was challenged in court in Sale v. Haitian Center's Council, Inc., 1993. And they said, yes, 212F is a complete shutoff. It overrides even asylum law. And the point was, in each time, there was a certain amount that even Democrats in our nation were willing to tolerate. And at some point, they said no. And that point was far before the breaking point we're at, we're at today. Another Washington uh, New York Times article saying that he feared a mass exodus of Haitians unless he acted, meaning there's no floor to this, right? President-elect Bill Clinton announced today So this was January 15th, 1993, just days before his inauguration, that he would at least temporarily abandon a campaign pledge and would continue the Bush administration's policy of forcibly returning Haitians who try to emigrate to the United States. It was Mr. Clinton who helped create the expectation of an exodus from Haiti when he condemned the Bush administration for a cruel policy of returning Haitian refugees to a brutal dictatorship without an asylum hearing. Mr. Clinton had promised to give Haitians refugee 
refuge and make it easier for them to apply for political asylum until democracy is restored in their country. At one point in the campaign, he said, quote, if I were president, I would, in the absence of clear and compelling evidence that they weren't political refugees, give them temporary asylum until we restore the elected government of Haiti. Notice even then he didn't say he'd do it indefinitely. Anyway, that promise prompted Haitians to build nearly a thousand boats that could accommodate as many as 150,000 people, many of whom are poised to set sail in stormy seas in the hopes of arriving on American shores at the moment of Mr. Clinton's inauguration Wednesday, intercepting refugees. But in a, bl- a bluntly worded taped radio message broadcast this morning directly to Haiti and Haitian communities in the United States, Mr. Clinton said that Haitians who fled by boat would be intercepted and returned to the island. He also emphasized that he would enforce current United States immigration policy, which prevents Haitians escaping poverty, but not those fleeing political, p- political persecution from seeking asylum in the United States. So notice not just the notion that you could turn anyone around, but the notion that if prima facie we know you're fleeing poverty and not political persecution, we don't have to bring you in and wait for a court to say that. That's an invasion. So you see what I'm saying? Even without 212F, even just following asylum law, if you know, if it's clear, I always say this, it's like, for example, let let, let me, uh, let me just bring this up here. I'm trying to find the case, not the case, the new story. Uh, CBP of San Diego put out a video capturing last week 52 people running on the beaches in San Diego. None of them surrendered. All 52 were eventually arrested after a two-hour foot chase with multiple agents. Once in custody, everyone claimed asylum. So these guys aren't even surrendering. They're literally running away from us. And then when we catch them, they declare asylum. You really mean to tell me we have to we have to deal with that? We can't deport them immediately? I mean, if you believe that, we don't have a nation. We don't deserve a nation. It's not a matter of a wall. It's a matter of a will. No other era would have done this, and we have the proof. It's unbelievable. You see, even Clinton changed his mind. Continuing with this New York Times article from February 15th, 1993, during the eight months before Mr. Bush announced his policy, more than 30,000 Haitians had set sail and 12,000 were housed in a makeshift refugee center at the American military base at Guantanamo Bay. Notice even when we were bringing them in, we put them in Guantanamo. When the base became overcrowded and Mr. Bush began his plan of forcible return, the Coast Guard turned back 5,000 Haitians to their homeland and the number of new boat people dropped dramatically. Notice that they always protected the American people. It's unbelievable. No other era would have done this. It's such nonsense. And again, like I said, even even in 2014, eventually, Obama started deporting people to deter what was going on. And it worked for until 2016 when he started with more amnesties. And then Trump was elected, just the sheer thought that he would actually mean what he says and say says what he means and would shut it down and he wouldn't be a paper tiger, it stopped. But then it started again when he started talking about amnesty. I was going to do an article, so I asked a former ICE director under Obama, Thomas Homan, to give me a quote on the record, and he sent me the following. ICE should do a nationwide operation to locate, arrest, and remove those 
that have entered the U.S. illegally have had their due process and lost their case and have been ordered removed by a federal judge to include family units. We did we did that about three years ago, and it had a significant impact on illegal border crossings. It worked to slow down the surge in FY15 and FY2016. For those in Central America that knowingly enter the U.S. in violation of law to take advantage of the loopholes, they need to realize that we are a nation of laws, and after you have been afforded due process at great taxpayer expense, you must abide by the decision of our court system. If a final order issued by a federal judge doesn't mean anything and it isn't executed, then there is no integrity to the entire system. And that's the thing. So we are so far behind the eight ball here. I mean, we won't certainly hold the ground on what we did back in the day, even under previous Democrat administrations, to just prevent them from landing here to begin with. But we won't even do the next step. Even the people that we give them this bogus due process that they shouldn't be accorded. We, um, we don't even deport the ones after the fact. According to new data obtained by Early, there are friends at the Immigration Reform Law Institute. They submitted a FOIA request and got back data. There are 644,000 Central Americans and Mexicans with final deportation orders. As of June 2018. So you can imagine that number is probably a few hundred thousand higher. Because that was like nine months ago before this entire influx. Another 1.1 million have pending final orders. So they're almost at the end of the process. It's 1.7 million. Why isn't ICE being mobilized to deport them? Why is this administration washing their hands? Because at least if you're not going to stop them at the front end, at least if on the back end, you know, you have a strategy of deporting them, then this conveyor belt will at least see, oh, well, Okay, the smugglers created an easy, safe way for us to get there. We might be let in. We might be let go. But ICE eventually will catch up with us. At least that will deter some of this. Because there is no floor to this. I mean, I, I read you that Washington Post article. I mean, this is this is a death spiral. I mean, that's my question. How much needs to happen? It was about 50,000 Haitians and 10, you know, maybe 10, 20,000 Nicaraguans. And again, a lot of them weren't even led on our soil or put in 10 cities or in Guantanamo. With the Muriel boat lift, it was 125,000. And again, a lot of that had to do with the politics of the fight against communism, why we even tolerated it that much. But you know what did it? You know what stopped it at the time with the boat lift? It was the criminal elements because he was sending criminal elements there. A bunch of crime was taking place. 
when we finally shut it down. This is an article from the Miami Sun Sentinel, Florida Sun Sentinel, um, in 1985. Five years ago today, Cuban President Fidel Castro closed the harbor of Mariel, ending the five-month boat lift that dramatically changed the face of South Florida. Most of the 125,000 Mariel refugees who sailed into Key West in the Freedom Flotilla have managed to adapt to American life, starting businesses businesses marketing their skills and raising families but their successes have been overshadowed by the actions of an estimated 16 to 20,000 criminals and other misfits who have contributed to an alarming increase in South Florida crime on any given day there are 350 to 400 Mariel Cubans in Dade County jails according to a recent report by the Dade Miami Criminal Justice Council this year alone the county will spend more than 6 million to house those criminals the state department of corrections will shell out another 6 million to house Mariels convicted of felonies in Dade Um, it's funny, uh, they quote, uh, Miami district director of the U S immigration naturalization, naturalization services. The whole situation has prevented tremendous problems to the safety and health of the community. The boat lift should never have been allowed to happen at any other time. It would have been an act of war, <laughs> which is true. It's funny. Cause I'm saying that now, but at least back then. They did shut it off after a certain point. Castro, he says, should be tried for moral complicity in murder, rape, and robbery committed by marial criminals upon their arrival in the U.S. Look, look at the way these people thought in those days. We actually had normal human beings in government. Unbelievable. So in each of these cases, we shut it down. Now... We won't do anything. Absolutely nothing. How far does this have to go? That's the question. How quick does the pace, you know, if it winds up being 200,000 a month, will that stop it? No, really. Will that stop it? I want to know. How bad does it have to get? I don't know. But but the district judge said the worst month of um, the Muriel boat crisis was about what February was here. But again, it was mainly one month of May. Before we kind of got a wrap on this. Mainly one month. It's all about building a will. Not a wall. I mean, I have no problem with the wall. I'm just saying. The wall is not going to stop this if we don't have a will. Here's my punchline. Last Wednesday, the president acting in a response to fear that a pair of Boeing planes, the Boeing 737 MAX planes, right, the MAX 8 and the MAX 9, were unsafe to fly. The president issued, through his acting FAA administrator, an emergency order to ground these planes, that they cannot fly in and out of this country. And 
you know, no, nobody thought twice about it. No one questions authority or anything. You can't fly these planes in and out of our country. Forty-nine U.S. Code forty-six one hundred five. Let me read to you a statute. When the administrator of the FAA is of the opinion that an emergency exists related to safety in air commerce and requires immediate action, the administrator, on the initiative of the administrator or on complaint, may prescribe regulations and issue orders immediately to meet the emergency, with or without notice, and without regard to this part of subchapter 2 or whatever. Okay. Right. That, that delegated authority was given. No one questions it. Can you imagine if you had, um, I don't know, Boeing, which, by the way, has direct stake in this, not some random plaintiff. They have direct stake in this. You're, you're grounding their planes. Would go to, um, I don't know, a district judge and say, hey, you know, this is not fair. And a judge would put an injunction on this order. Do you think for a minute this administration and anyone in the political class would agree to start flying these planes with with the looming danger? How much more so when you have a geopolitical invasion of hundreds of thousands that will approach the millions that's getting worse by the day as we do nothing with the crime, with the drugs, with the gangs – with the health concerns, with the poverty, permanently changing our language, culture, schools, everything. Let me compare that statute of the FEA to 212F of the INA that we keep citing. Quote, whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or of any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants, or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem to be appropriate. Everyone's like, ah, Daniel, a-, a Congress needs to act. Again, for messaging, it never hurts for Congress to act. I'm just telling you guys, you cannot get more categorical language than that language. You just can't. And notice, it, it's it, to, to deny entry or to place restrictions. So you could deny them from landing or if they get here or say, hey, you have to go to a tent city. If you're not willing to invoke that fully, not just in a halfway, you know, roundabout way, he did it a little bit in some cases, but then submits himself to a district judge, you got to push back. There's three other important observations to make about the statute. Number one, the criteria for exclusion is not based on a national security concern or terrorism. Not that you don't have that. I think you do. It's anything that in the determination of the president would, quote, be detrimental to the interests of the United States. I mean, that is abundantly clear. Heck, the Washington Post will tell you that. 
public welfare, health concerns, values, attitudes, drugs. Number two, just like the president has authority to completely shut off immigration, like we said, he may impose any restrictions on entry. Okay? So he could say you have to be returned to U.S. consulate in Mexico. Um, also, I just want to point out there's another statute, 215A of the INA, that's 1185. Unless otherwise ordered by the president, president, it shall be unlawful for any alien to depart from or enter or attempt to depart from or enter the United States except under such reasonable rules, regulations, and orders and subject to such limitations and exceptions as the president may prescribe. That's another statute. I don't know what to tell you. Okay? This is complete delegated authority. I found this in the the CRS, uh, Congressional Research Service report. This is a House report in 19 uh, on the 1952 law, which as we noted, this law was really had its origins in the 1891 law. The accompanying committee report explaining the bill said the bill vests in the president the authority to suspend the entry of all aliens if he finds that their entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States for such period as he shall deem necessary. It's been invoked about 44 times since 1981, 19 times by President Obama. The one major Supreme Court case covering 212F was that sale case with the Haitian migrants. It was an 8-to-1 decision authored by Justice Paul Stevens that affirmed the clear reality that there are no justiciable limitations on 212F authority. If they are not willing to assert this, nothing matters. And nothing will change with this election. People just don't realize this. Nothing will change. Which brings us back to the beginning of the show. We talked about Congress taking a 10-day vacation, doing nothing. And the fact that as long as Congress is out, our side kind of goes to sleep. Because if Congress is out and they're done their disagreement with the president, the president vetoed the bill, all right, we're done. Okay, the president vetoed the disapproval, so we don't have a problem anymore. Meanwhile, the invasion intensifies worse than ever, and no one pays attention. Because, again, our side only cares about what Trump tells them to care about. We don't actually want to get things done. We don't actually want to solve a problem. But you know who is in session? The judicial branch. They never take a break. Certainly the lower courts. Just over the weekend, another district judge in New York, said that Trump has to continue this special juvenile immigrant visa program, which basically takes a lot of these UACs, these teenagers, and says, oh, they're abused, so they could apply for the status that gives them a green card. A lot of the abusers claim to be abused, and they get it. And th- Again, this is one of the areas where Cisna 
who's one of the better guys in the administration at USCIS, has been clamping down on green cards. Well, guess what? As we noted last week, with him clamping down on marriage and naturalization fraud, a New York district judge could come right in. And, and by the way, I want to point out, you know, just to elaborate on a point I made last week, a lot of you asked me about the news that we flipped the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit is is now conservative. Well, no, the Third Circuit now has slightly more Republican appointees on the active bench than Democrat appointees. So it, not all of them are good. It's it's at best half and half. Now, the Third Circuit is Philadelphia-based. That's Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Guess what's close by, as I noted? To the south is the Fourth Circuit, which is irremediably broken. To the north is the Second Circuit, New York, which is irremediably broken. So any issue that is national in scope, which immigration always will be, they'll just go to where they can win. You're absolutely right. Those of you who think that we're making progress, if we would end and fight back against the universal universal injunction notion, that they could just go anywhere and get a universal injunction. But we don't. We agree to it. So then we're stuck. There's really not much we can do. So this all leads me to the punchline. What is it Trump should do? It's all of the above. Declare a real emergency. Give a speech announcing that you're sending the military to the border to hold the line. Hold the line against the cartels. Hold the line against anyone coming in. We will not allow anyone in. Invoke Article 2. Invoke 212F. Invoke 215A. Invoke Sale v. Haitian Immigrant Centers, Inc., a Supreme Court case. Other precedent. Trump v. Hawaii itself, this is nonsense. Universal injunctions are nonsense. We are not allowing anyone in, anyone who gets in, and those already here. We're having a rocket docket in tent cities to get them back out within 72 hours. Mobilize ICE to start deporting these hundreds of thousands of families that have already received deportation orders, but we're not going after them because we want to say, oh, we're only going after criminal aliens. But again, if you want to stop and deter this invasion, it's worth temporarily diverting resources. And then finally, we get tough on Mexico. We say, you're going to keep them in your country. Because you know what? Here's an interesting thought no one's making. No one's articulating. We served as a doormat for Mexico for decades having millions of their illegals irrevocably alter the fabric of this nation in so many different ways. So you know what? Maybe it's your time to pay us back a little bit and do your fair share for Central Americans, okay? We took in millions of yours. You'll take in hundreds of thousands of Central Americans. How about that, buddies? And to leverage that, I believe Trump, he officially forged some sort of informal deal on NAFTA reauthorization, it hasn't been approved by Congress yet. So I think he needs to renege on that and go back and say, we're going to renegotiate this. And the most important issue is not even trade. It's over this immigration issue. You have to keep them in your country. It's only fair. And also, as part of the declaration of emergency, he could deputize any federal, they're called 1811s. Anyone who wears a badge, it could be fish and wildlife, it could be park rangers, it could be BLM, um, marshals, anyone could be deputized into immigration enforcement. Um, And then also you should invoke the statute that allows under a mass migration uh, event, 
to deputize local law enforcement, that does require the head of that local law enforcement to sign off on it. So the Democrat ones won't do it, obviously, but at least the ones that are under Republican control in Texas and um, Arizona will do that and send all these people to the line, all the military and law enforcement to the line to hold the line to stop new people coming in, send all the adjudicators, including offering uh, payment for retired immigration judges to the line at, at 10 cities, to, to hold them there and to adjudicate, run a multi-hundred million dollar media campaign in Central America saying times have changed, policies have changed, you can no longer come here and declare asylum. And the thing is, you won't have to do this for that long. All you got to do is end it. But instead of marshalling ICE resources to deport even the ICE resources that aren't taken off the line are being taken off by DHS secretary to go along with Border Patrol to do catch and release. As you know, Chris Crane wrote a letter. The Chris Crane's the head of the ICE union, wrote a personal letter to the president and says, hey, you have stepped on the gas pedal with Catch and release. Don't say you do, you're, 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 you've ended catch and release. That's nonsense. Not only haven't you ended it, you know his his point was a little bit in the weeds, but it's an important point that once you're doing catch and release, so Border Patrol does it. You don't need to get ICE involved in it. At least let ICE do what they're doing. No, they're getting ICE involved and shutting down ICE. So there's that. That's the best we can do. Daniel, but but what what happens if a district judge says you can't do it? Well, th- then nothing matters anyway because that's not going to change. I'm here to tell you that will not change. I challenge all of you to un- to to tell me if we are going to agree to the notion that you can't do anything legislatively without 60 votes, and you can't do anything executively, which the president in some areas of his administration has various people doing some good things, but it all gets shut down by the courts. Because we agree a court could shut it down. They can't. They don't have any power to enforce that. I mean, think about it in this case I mentioned with the special special juvenile immigrant visas. SJIVs. So a judge says what? You can't do this. Meaning what? You have to issue a green card. Well, no, you judge issue a green card. Oh, whoops, I forgot. You don't have that power. A judge can't tell the executive branch to violate law and issue green cards to people that, pursuant to the real law, need to be deported. Okay, if you're the president and the law tells you one thing and a district judge tells you the opposite thing, you have to listen to the law. And if you're too scared to do that, then you know what? Nothing matters anyway. Trump could have a second term. He could have control of the House. Tell me what changes. Tell me. Meaning at least if you're going to stand up against the universal injunction part, you could tell me that over the course of two terms, they'll be able to appoint enough judges, change things a little bit, that it limits the impact that they could go to because even if they get a positive ruling, it's, it's only for those plaintiffs. But if you're not going to push back one iota against one facet of even lower court supremacy, nothing matters. I can't get off of this talking point. Some of you might be sick of me saying it, But that's the source of everything. It all gets back to that. The judicial power grab 
is everything. But um, you know, no, nobody's speaking truth to power on this. So that's the latest going on in immigration. You know, here at the border. And, and by the way, I just missed one thing. And the president needs to designate the cartels as terrorist groups, because w- one of the things that still is true is that even if you would shut down the lawfare. And, and I do believe it would shut down the invasion instantaneously. You do always have the looming threat of the cartels. For example, last week, uh, CBP put out a video showing cartels taking 10-year-old girls and throwing them over the border wall. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that this didn't happen, but I'm just asking, did we ever send our agents behind that wall to go go after these dudes? Or, or, or is it that we only send our agents behind the wall to pick up invaders and bring them in and catch and release, but we won't send them behind the wall to go and catch the bad guys? In other words, we need, no matter what, we need to treat this like a military operation. These are my five, six ideas or so put together. That is it. There is no way around that. Any sovereign nation would have done that. And if you're not going to do that, then nothing's going to change anyway. Then it's just a question of how much of these countries have to empty themselves out into America before it makes a difference. And, you know, I was just thinking when you talk about how the American people had the outrage from the Cubans because, um, you know, it, it, ultimately there were some very productive people who came. And that, that's a whole different story with Cuba versus Central America and the nature of these people. Um, and their produ- productivity level. But what happened was um, Castro is part of weaponizing the migration, which is really what these guys are doing now. He would send criminals here. He would um, let it, he started letting out the prisons. Which again, that is happening. We are having criminals. And I, be- I, I really wonder if they're weaponizing diseases too, because it's awfully interesting that you have all these outbreaks now. If I wanted to screw up America, there's no greater way. Again, everyone bristles when I say it's an invasion. No, that's not what an invasion is. People coming with an army and weapons. and uh, Like, no, you idiot. If you're Russia or China or Iran and Venezuela and, you know, just all our enemies, you're not going to want to do that because we'll then we'll push it back right away. This is much more severe. It's permanently embedded in our culture, society, and law and politics. Heck, it creates its own constituency. But anyway, when we're talking about the criminals, what do you think we've had with the Central Americans, the teenagers, the children, all these people that you see murdering people? You see 24-year-old El Salvadoran. Well, today's 20-something is your UAC who came in in 2013, 2014, as was the case with that demon that murdered Bambi Larson. So that's another thing. Anyway, that's the latest on immigration. Just wanted to do a quick rocket docket, speaking of a rocket docket, called Daniel's Details. Just uh, some stories you might have missed. Just go down the line here. Tim Scott is at it again. Another nominee to the Ninth Circuit after he downed one, Kenneth Lee, who, by the way, is an American of Asian descent. Um, Tim Scott said that 
the past writings are, quote, concerning without question. And he will look at the latest bunch that has not yet been seen. The more writings that come out, the more I start contemplating my vote. So remember how Josh Hawley got raked through the coals, hundreds of thousands of dollars of ads spent against him by the Judicial Crisis Network, threatened with a primary challenger. When will anyone threaten this clown with a primary challenger? But they won't because we're all racial in this party. And it's, it's kind of kosher, so to speak, to challenge someone from the left, especially on racial grounds. Now, never mind the fact that this guy is of Asian descent, but I guess in Tim Scott's Intersectionality Olympics, Asians lose. I guess they're treated like whites in his um, pyramid of stupidity. So there's that story. Another story. Trump agreeing to keep troops in Syria. You might have seen the Wall Street Journal article. There's disagreements over how true it is and how many soldiers, soldiers, but I don't think anyone disagrees that Trump's decision for an immediate pullout is gone. He's keeping them there, which means they'll indefinitely be there, just like they'll indefinitely be in Afghanistan if, after he promised to get out. And again, this is a perfect example of how us pressuring Trump is actually upholding him. And you guys who are like, stop criticizing Trump, you're actually the ones helping the swamp. Because I think we all agree here that Trump personally is very clear, believes it's stupid and wants to stop it. But he feels like he's under siege because everyone unanimously in the swamp and DOD and State Department, all these agencies want to keep them there. And he's like, oh, what am I going to do? So instead of, we, we should give him help by saying, no, this is unacceptable. It's, it's time to end this nonsense. By standing down, you're not that, – that's the funny. If you're standing down because you think you're backing Trump, like no one could deny here where Trump stands. Everyone knows he's opposed to this. So that's another example where we think we're winning and we're not. We're not for outcomes. We're just for if Trump publicly demands something of us, we'll stand up for it. But if he doesn't, even when we know he agrees with us on something, we'll just stand down. Another thing, Trump did an interview with Breitbart uh, last week saying, I don't want anyone on welfare coming in. Well, Mr. President, what the heck do you think the million Central Americans are? Okay? <laughs> you, you know, I, I mean, I think he was talking in the context of legal immigration, but it doesn't matter. If you're going to make illegal immigrants essentially legal immigrants under the bogus asylum, then, I mean, dude, indigenous, indigenous people from uh, the – Jungles of Central America, I mean, <laughs> can't get more of a public charge than that. So there's that. Two more quick stories. Um, just wanted to clear the docket here of, uh, of all our news. Ethanol. Last week, Trump's EPA announced for the first time they're allowing, even during the summer, the EPA to blend in E15 blends. In other words, rather than 10%, but 15% ethanol. So it could damage our engines. Now, there's, there's a little bit of nuanced footwork here. Some of you might see stuff from the ethanol lobby say, this was outrageous. You know, it's time we end the government regulations. Like, So all of a sudden they become free marketeers. Like, yeah, government holding down ethanol when... Really, the entire industry was a creation of the boot of government. Like, yeah, yeah regulating E15. Here, here's the complicated thing here. I am all for taking off regulations on productivity and blending of ethanol. You could have E100. You could put as much ethanol as you want. 
But then you got to get rid of the ethanol mandate forcing us to use it. If you, I mean, it's unbelievable. They get free market when they, they don't want to be regulated, but then they want to regulate all of us by mandating we use their product. Here's the, here's the moral hazard in that. I don't support regulations, but if you're going to have the mandate, then yes, I do want some sort of safety net regulating so you don't damage my engines with your garbage. But yeah, my end goal is not regulation. I'd just rather take off the mandate and then do what you want. Sell your piece of garbage. Oh, whoops, you can't because no one would buy it without the boot of government, buddies. Another example of the administration being so close with the ethanol lobby and squandering such a winning free market populist issue. This is a perfect illustration, perfect example to show the American people how government gets together with the rich and powerful lobbies to distort farmlands or actually hurt small-time farmers hurt consumers, raise the cost of food food and fuel, damage our engines. I mean, it's the perfect free market populist issue where populism works in concert with free market doctrine. With all these Democrat candidates, although I'm for the little guy, millionaires and billionaires, Bernie Sanders is a horror for ethanol. All of them are now. Perfect place for us to distinguish ourselves, but there we go. We don't have a vision. Daniel, but uh, you can't win Iowa if you don't uh, ethanol. Tell it to Ted Cruz, who beat Trump in Iowa, being the first candidate to oppose the ethanol mandate. Final story we have our lovely Fox News. Well, what happens when you make Fox News the arbiter of conservatism? Um, well... So we know that Fox News won't allow any serious policy discussion and you know won't support our policies. But we're all into this kind of quasi-cultural fights with the Democrats saying this. We respond to it. Okay, well, one of the big things that happened recently, the big narratives that conservative media has been so consumed with is Ilan Omar, the Somali congresswoman from Mogadishu, a.k.a. that area of Minneapolis, with all her anti-Semitic, you know, third-world conspiracy theory stuff about Jews. On Saturday, Fox suddenly canceled Janine Pirro's show, highly rated weekend show, because of comments she made about Omar. A Muslim Fox News associate producer, Hufsa Kamal Kahan, was really upset, and he evidently got them to do that. You know, um, Piro said something. Uh, what's the quote? Quote, think about it. She She's not getting this anti-Israel sentiment doctrine from the Democrat Party. So if it's not rooted in the party, where is she getting it from? Think about it. Omar wears a hijab, which according to the Quran 3359 tells women to cover so they won't get molested in her adherence to the Islamic doctrine, indicative of her adherence to Sharia law, which in itself is antithetical to the United States Constitution. See, this is the thing that you're not allowed to say. See, this is what, what Fox News clamps down on you. This question of Sharia law. There's one thing to bring in a few Muslim immigrants here and there, but when you bring in such large numbers and they start adhering to this, you know, is it fundamentally, fundamentally in concert with our Constitution? 
Well, as you well know, Sharia law is all about subverting. And that's that's the that's the story, folks. But this is what happens when we allow Fox News to control our thought. Imagine if we had um I don't know, people from Blaze Media running MSNBC. You don't have to imagine. It wouldn't happen. What's the sum total of today's show of all this? We need a will, not just a wall. We need to believe in ourselves. We need to believe in our country. We need to believe in something. If you want to look for a model, just look at how the left believes and what they believe in. But ironically, see the left even back in the day, believed in something, believed in things to the right that we even have today. You know, you're going to find a lot of conservatives are going to be focused on, oh, O'Rourke this and this candidate that, and we're going to be refereeing the Democrat primary when really we have no business in that other than ensuring that whatever we have has a vision to beat whatever they have. Let's worry about our vision. But there's one very important observation all of you need to learn from the Democrat primary, and that is – Joe Biden is already under attack, and he's going to be under attack for all the things that he said in the day that they don't view as progressive. And that should show us how far to the left we've all moved. Joe Biden, any of you old enough to remember following politics in the 80s and 90s, I don't remember the 80s, but I remember the 90s, Joe Biden was never a blue dog. He was viewed as a liberal Democrat. And yet even he was tough on crime, wasn't open borders, so they're going to dig up comments from him, you know, for their from for their purposes to show that he's not progressive enough to win a Democrat primary. But for our purposes, that should so, show us how far we've all moved to the left and how badly we need a new vision. Thank you so much for listening as always. God bless you all. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience.